you would turn now in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1, I'll be reading and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 31. And as you're turning there, just by way of brief reminder, the first chapter and really the first five chapters do help to give us a sense of the entirety of the prophecy. There are themes that are given here that are somewhat glimpses of what we will see in the future that are a bit more detailed further down the line. And as I said last week, this is yet another portion of Isaiah's prophecy, even though it is just a glimpse into what we will see in the future, it is something that will nevertheless make us very uncomfortable in some ways. But all of that to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we, we may revel in His grace toward us. So Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. This is the word of our God. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. A lot of people today don't like the church because the church is full of hypocrites. Now, of course, one response could be in such conversations to say, well, we could always use one more. That probably won't go over well. But unfortunately, there's too much truth in what so many in this world have to say about the church. We do deal with a lot of hypocrisy. And dare I say, there is a lot of it that has tainted our own hearts. Where we say one thing, we think people need to behave this way, and we behave in the complete opposite way. We end up living even within the confines of the church for our own comforts, for our own desires, rather than looking out for the needs of others. Well, in many respects, that's what 
Isaiah faced in his ministry to the people of Israel, more specifically to Judah and especially to Jerusalem. This was a nation that was effectively falling apart. And it was falling apart due to their continued wickedness. And as we'll continue to see throughout, one of the main themes that we see repeated in one way, shape, or form throughout Isaiah's prophecy is God's warning to his people not to trust in men. Not to trust in men, but to trust in God alone. How tempting it was to form all kinds of alliances with neighboring nations. God said, don't do it. And yet they did it. And of course, historically we know that for the northern tribes, even during Isaiah's ministry, the northern tribes were effectively wiped out. And even Judah was close, was on the brink, and we'll see some of the history of that when we get into the latter chapters of this first half, roughly chapters 36 through 39. But the second half of the book gives out hope, the hope in the one who will come. God himself come in the flesh, the suffering servant who would rescue his people. We've seen in chapter 1 last week in particular, we saw how God warned us, warned His people against any kind of rebellion, particularly in view of the grace that He had shown them. How awful it is, how terrible it is when God bestows so much grace upon His church And they effectively ignore him, effectively thumb their noses at him. But thankfully, the Lord is gracious and kind. And he is faithful to his covenant promises despite ourselves. And really what I hope to show out of these verses today, verses 21 to 31, is simply this, that the Lord himself will restore his people even as he removes wickedness from them. The Lord himself will restore his people even as he removes wickedness from them. I'm going to look at this under three headings. First of all, the decline of Jerusalem. Secondly, the restoration by God. And then finally, judgment for sinners. So decline of Jerusalem, restoration by God, and judgment for sinners. So first of all, the decline of Jerusalem. Again, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, presents for us imagery that really shows a stark contrast to what the nation, Israel, and particularly Jerusalem, as her capital once was, to what they have now become. And in fact, some of this language is somewhat reminiscent of what we see in Hosea. Remember what Hosea was tasked to do. Go marry a harlot. Go marry a whore. Because that is what Israel has become. 
The faithful city has now become a whore. That is remarkably intense language. That's not exactly what you would call gentle. But in another sense, it is because it is God's word to his people to warn them, to warn them of where they have fallen to. They were once the faithful city. And the word there for faithful, it has the idea of trustworthy, sure, dependable. Not as though they were sinless, but they were at one time, presumably for the most part under King David and even into Solomon's reign to some degree, generally understood to be a faithful city just and righteous in her time. But now she's become as unfaithful as one can imagine. Once this city was full of justice, once this city was filled with righteousness, righteousness lodged there. And the contrast between righteousness and what now lies there is extreme. Now there are murderers there. It's not to say that each and every person in the city were murderers. It's just that we went from a city where righteousness and justice shined forth, and now murderers run free. Well, Isaiah expands on this decline using imagery, using metaphors and and the like, figurative language. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Silver to dross and wine mixed with waters. Now, commentators note that the description here is rather interesting because when you see silver to dross, it's almost imperceptible in and of itself because the dross actually kind of looks like the silver, And to get rid of it, that's where you have to heat it up to really high heat, and the dross sort of floats to the top, and then you can then really see it. Think also of the wine when you mix water with wine in order, you know, to save a buck. It still looks like wine, but now it's watered down. It's not the same thing. This is what has happened. It's not even so much that the city has become like dross or silver with dross in it. It's almost as if they had some sort of wicked alchemy where they've gone from being silver to being just the dross. The basic idea is that what looks good was actually filled with and really just became impurity. You can almost say pure impurity. Notice how far this extends and where the source of all this comes. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Notice it starts at the top. The word here for princes, it could refer to royalty, but it doesn't have to. It's those who are in positions of power and influence. They are essentially thieves. That's what they are. That's what they deal with. 
Instead of being princes, they've become rebels. They've become rebels. Fundamentally, then, the nation's decline is due to her king's decline. And that's been seen all throughout history, not even just church history. We see this phenomenon in the world. Do we not see this in our culture today? Those who are supposed to be our leaders, paragons of truth and righteousness, they're rebels themselves. They put on airs and they work wickedness left and right, and they wonder why our nation is continuing to decline. But it's not just our nation. It's others as well. They love bribes. They run after gifts. They're looking to make a quick buck. And as a result, everyone loves those bribes. They run after these gifts. And instead of doing what they're supposed to, caring for those who are helpless, they do everything they can to make money. And it almost seems, reading between the lines, that they do it at the expense of those they are supposed to help. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Now, typically in the Old Testament, there is always concern for the widow, the fatherless, and the orphan. Now, the orphan's not mentioned here, but we can pretty much understand that they're included Widows, or excuse me, the sojourner, the orphan, the fatherless, all three of those. It's actually the sojourner that's not here. The three there are presented as those who have no basic rights, those who no one cares about, the helpless. Now, as you think about this and you kind of realize, you know, I've read through 1 Kings, I've read through First and Second Chronicles, and, and seeing the decline, particularly of both the northern kingdom and then subsequently the, the southern kingdom, and you think, boy, how could they not have learned? And yet this was also written not just for them, it was written for us as well. The truth of the matter is we as the church need to beware of a similar decline. And we see this happening around us at a most rapid rate. It's happened throughout all of church history where there will be declines in the church, some such that lead to the Protestant Reformation, some that lead to what we now call the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Some of it is doctrinal decline, but some of it is also moral decline. Because now so many who profess to be Christians today are willing to adopt wickedness and celebrate it in the name of love. Jesus accepts everyone. Yet the Bible presents to us a Jesus that, yes, will give forgiveness and grace to those who repent. But he is also the one who will judge all men with equity. And so we as a church, even just our little congregation, ought to take heed 
and not be so quick to look upon Jerusalem of Isaiah's day and shake our head and say, boy, how foolish they were, because we are easily susceptible to the same decline. This actually then leads us to our second point, restoration by God. Look now at verse 24. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice, and I'm sort of, sort of jumping ahead a bit, but verses 24 through 26 form kind of a chiasm. It just kind of flows back to itself. The themes move in one direction and then swing back the way it came. Notice in verse 24, you have a rather emphatic description of the one who now speaks. First, you have the Lord declares. Now, maybe you noticed, Lord is not in all caps. That is where we get it's where we get Adonai. It's not quite Adonai. It's just Adon, Lord, means the same thing. Adonai is more just my Lord. But it is the sovereign one. It is the master who declares. And then it is Lord in all caps of hosts. That's Jehovah or Yahweh, Sabaoth. He is the commander of the heavenly hosts, the mighty one the mighty one of Israel. In other words, Isaiah is leaving no doubt whatsoever that it is God who is declaring this. And what is he declaring? It's fascinating because you think about this. Part of verse 24 speaks about God getting relief for himself against his enemies. But then he goes on to describe a restoration You see, even here in these verses, as we will see all throughout Isaiah, it is ultimately God in whom we must trust. It is God who brings salvation. It is God who restores. We cannot rely upon our own strength. We cannot rely upon the strength of others because they will fail. But the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, He declares. He is the one who sets the stage for the salvation of His people. Notice first, He uses language that is accommodating to our sensibilities. It is not as though God in His essence, God in His being, needs relief. We can't hurt God. He's the impassable God, or God without passions, which means that as he is of himself, nothing we do changes him. He's not moved in such ways. But what we have here is God's condescending himself using language that we can understand. Because you and I know what it's like to be sinned against. How painful that can be. And sometimes we just want it to stop. And so he uses language to which we are familiar to make the point. And notice that God himself says, 
He is the one who will avenge himself on his foes. Now, it is fascinating. This is the part that will smart just a little bit, make us squirm a little bit more. Who are his foes? Our natural answer is, it's those people out there. But he's talking to his holy city. He's making this declaration to his own people, which means even in the midst of Jerusalem, there are those who are foes of God. Now that further explains what we saw in the first three verses of this section. The faithful city has become a whore or a harlot. And God himself will avenge himself. But even in the midst of this avenging of himself, notice what he does. I will turn my hand against you. Uh, Some translations have upon you. And woodenly speaking, that's probably more accurate. I will turn my hand upon you. Against is not a bad translation. But you do have that sort of ambiguity, and maybe that's, all, that's deliberate. Because notice what God says. He will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. Remember the dross? How the silver became dross? Well, now God says he will take care of the dross. He will be the one who smelts it away. He is the one who removes all the impurities. And so here we have, after a description of how much Jerusalem has fallen, and by implication, by result of Jerusalem falling, the whole rest of the nation, that God himself will take the lead and remove those impurities. That's the grace of God. This is gospel language here. This is promise. And for you and for me in the church, we recognize that every day we deal with the dross that remains within us. And we constantly need to rely upon God to purify us, to get rid of the remnants and relics of sin. Though the power of sin has been overwhelmed, By Christ, it has been conquered by Christ. The chains and bondage of sin, those things, those of us who have faith in Christ, we've been set free. But do we not still struggle with the temptations of this world when the old man tries to wage war in our hearts to lead us astray? God himself will remove the dross. That's the hope that we have. You and I cannot rely upon other people, other ways of thinking, the philosophies of this world. We cannot legislate our way to morality. It starts with the heart. It's true. All legislation is moral in some way. But simply passing laws will not make people moral. God himself 
needs to and will work in our hearts to purify us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is nothing other than the gospel. God will sanctify and purify his people. God will sanctify and purify his church. You know, in many respects, we look around at the church at large, not talking about us specifically, but we should be on our guard. But sometimes we look at the church at large, and it really can be depressing and discouraging. But God himself will purify his church. That's our hope. That's what ought to make us who are tired of sin, tired of the wickedness, tired of the immorality that creeps into the church. That should strengthen us to press on because God will preserve and purify his church. But notice also what God says. After smelting the dross in verse 26, God says this, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now, how did this section begin? The faithful city became a whore. Now God purifies the city and makes it faithful once again. That's our hope as a congregation. That's our hope as citizens in Christ's kingdom. That's our hope for the church of Jesus Christ, that God would continue to purify her. We long for the day. We see images that are presented to us at the end of Revelation, how the city comes as a pure bride, the bride of Christ. That's what we long for. That's what we press on towards. And it is God himself who does this, not by our own strength, not by our own wisdom, not by our own sense of intelligence or anything of the like. It is God himself who does it because no one else can. It is God who does this. He restores the judges as at the first, as it was to be under God's word. Counselors as well. The word here, counselors, this is Isaiah's first use of it. Of course, that makes sense. We're in the first chapter. But Isaiah uses it more than any other prophet. Only Micah uses it once, and then Nahum, of all prophecies, Nahum uses it once. Isaiah uses it frequently, and in fact, it's the same word that we see with wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You see, at the end of the day, the judge and the counselor that God will establish is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church. He will continue to build her. He will continue to purify her. 
This is the image of what John sees on the island of Patmos with Jesus, the exalted risen Christ among the lampstands. The priest's work in the Old Testament at the temple and tabernacle were to keep the lampstands going, to care for the lampstands, make sure they burned properly. That represented the church. And Christ himself is in the midst of the church making sure that she burns properly. He cares for her. He heals her. He also warns her, even as we see Isaiah warning Jerusalem. These judges, these counselors will be restored. Decisions will be made based on wisdom, godly wisdom rather than greed, rather than wickedness, with the result that once again she will be called the city of righteousness. And thus that chiasm of verses 21 through 26 completes, and we've come full circle. But as you look now at verse 27, verse 27 is a wonderful segue as well. In one sense, it summarizes what Isaiah has just said, but it also prepares the way for the warning of what will come as well. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. Zion here, of course, we think of Mount Zion where the temple was built, and frequently in the Old Testament, and particularly in the prophets, Zion is used to represent the city as a whole the capital city, the place where God made his dwelling. Notice, Zion will be redeemed. By who? Well, hopefully we can fill that in quite easily. It is the Lord who redeems. And that language is important because he has to redeem them. That is, buy them back. God cannot just wink at sin. He cannot just simply overlook it and say, oh, that's okay. A price needs to be paid to satisfy divine justice. Now, of course, on this side of the New Testament, we know that that redemption is wrought through Jesus Christ, his son. It is through Christ that God redeems sinners like you and me. Zion is redeemed. The church of Jesus Christ is redeemed by God the Son come in the flesh who bore the penalty in our place. And notice how verse 27 continues. And those in her who repent by righteousness. So it is by justice and by righteousness And that ultimately is fulfilled in Christ because he lived perfectly in this life. He is the righteous one. But notice the importance that Isaiah stresses here on repentance. Now the word here for repent is a typical Hebrew word that means to turn or return or turn back. It's aptly translated repent here. But it's the idea of turning, a change of direction. 
as we think about what repentance is according to our uh, doctrinal standards, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, for instance, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and misery, he does what? With grief and hatred of his sin, he turns from them to God with the purpose of endeavoring after new obedience. That's what repentance is. Thus, even here in this short little clause of verse 27, God is showing us the necessity of repentance. God is showing us the necessity of repentance. Now, that sounds pretty harsh, necessity of repentance. You've got to be careful. That might turn into works righteousness. Well, just because something is required does not mean that becomes the basis for which we're redeemed. The only sole basis of our redemption, our salvation, is Christ Jesus and his finished work. That is the sole basis, ground, reason for your salvation. Nevertheless, faith and repentance are still required of us. There is no salvation without faith and repentance. But our faith and our repentance is never, ever the basis or the ground of our salvation. That's Jesus Christ. But each and every day, we as Christians even, need to be examining our hearts, repenting of particular sins, particularly as a confession of faith puts it, that we would learn more and more to hate our sin and turn from them more and more unto God. That's part of the sanctifying process of God on our hearts that more and more we be conformed to the image of Christ. But here we see there is no redemption without repentance. All of us need to remember this. It's almost as if repentance has become a naughty word in the church today. They'll still uphold faith but they've shied away from repentance. Repentance presupposes something. Sort of like in the same way baptism presupposes something. Baptism signifies cleansing. And it's a wonderful thing. We witnessed the baptism this morning. But it presupposes stains of sin upon us that need cleansing. Repentance presupposes that we are living in sin and that we need to turn from that sin back to God. That's repentance. And how wonderful it is for those who are truly penitent, those who flee to Christ, He sets us free and He pardons us he redeems us. He restores us and welcomes us into his family.
And we then, as a church, as a body, become that city of righteousness, that faithful city once again. Well, this actually does lead us to our third and final point, judgment for sinners. Look again at verse 28. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. As we think about this last section, judgment for sinners, I would remind you of what we said back in verse 24, who were the foes spoken of there. This is language to those within the people of God, within the nation of Israel, within the city of Jerusalem, and for you and for me today, within the visible church. Rebels and sinners will be broken together. That purification process, God purifying His church, will on the surface be somewhat painful to the body because those within our midst who may be hypocrites, false converts, God is saying they will be broken. Rebels. The word there for rebels is just transgressor. That's all it is, is transgressor. Transgressors and sinners will be broken together. Now, it's interesting that there's no verb there in that clause. The the word broken is more an adjective. It's a translation to accommodate a Hebrew uh, way of speaking without verbs sometimes. But it's also the word broken is the first thing in the clause for the emphasis on God's judgment. Broken will be the rebels, the transgressors, the sinners. And it's parallel. Those who are the transgressors, those who are sinners, those are running parallel with those who forsake Jehovah. These are the ones that are consumed. Now, the word here for consumed, it has a wide range of meaning. And the root means to simply be finished. And like I said, because the word has a wide range of meaning, it could be used in positive ways too. But here it has this emphasis of being consumed, coming to an end, that they will perish, that they will vanish. That's the description of what will happen to those in the visible church who are actually those who are hypocrites, false converts, etc., Notice part of the reason why. In verse 29 and 30 is a little bit difficult because there's not all that much information given. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. What is this language about oaks and gardens? Well, it seems commentators uh, seem to see this as a subtle reference pointing forward to what we'll see much more explicitly in this prophecy, pointing forward to pagan false religion and the oaks, the wood from which those idols are made. Isaiah will later on really make fun of the sinners who take a block of wood and make an idol with part of it 
and then just burn a fire to keep warm. It's absurd. And they'll bow down and worship to the one piece, and then they'll just warm their hands with the other. It seems that commentators like Calvin and uh, E.J. Young seem to point forward that this is giving us a glimpse that what has happened is in Jerusalem is that they have forsaken the Lord and they have brought in other pagan rituals into their worship. If not completely forsaken God himself. And as such, they'll be ashamed of it. They desired the oaks. They desired trees rather than desire God. They turned to their gardens. And that's somewhat reminiscent of the high places that were established by Jeroboam, which further and further caused the northern tribes to decline at a faster rate. Judah, of course, caught up under Manasseh after Isaiah's ministry. But they turned to created things rather than the creator. And this is in the midst of God's people. This is before God, before his face. They had other gods before him. Verse 30 tells us what will happen to them. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. They will be deprived of that which truly gives life. And they will wither. Now, oak trees are pretty impressive trees. They are strong. They are big. They are hard to bring down. But if you rob it of its water, eventually it will die. You know what happens to your own garden if they don't get enough water? When we are in drought conditions and we're no longer allowed to water our grass or water our gardens, what happens? It really doesn't take long in the Oklahoma heat for it all to wither. That's what's being described here. And that which sustains God's people will be removed from them. And they will wither. They will fade away. But like that oak leaf whose leaf withers in the garden without water, they too will shrivel up and die because they have rejected their God. The strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And what happens when there's tinder, dried out wood, and a spark comes? Poof. It burns. And it burns well. It burns fast. And it's consumed. Both of them, that is, the person and his work, will burn. They will burn together with none to quench them. As we consider this, we consider the language that Isaiah uses. The thing that I don't think I can stress enough is that Isaiah, under the inspiration of the 
Holy Spirit is talking to his own people. There will be a point later on where he does have oracles against the nations. But remember how this prophecy began in verse 1. It's the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning the world? No. Concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And E.J. Young takes that as a possibility being at Judah and especially Jerusalem. In the days of those kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This is a prophecy to God's people. The church really ought to take heed. I said last week how evangelicalism at large, even with right motives, look at the prophecy of Isaiah and see all those messianic overtones, all the prophecies of the Messiah to come. And they rejoice in those things. They celebrate those things, and rightly so. But how much more beautiful will the prophecies of the Messiah look when we see what it is we deserve in contrast? We are the people of Judah and Jerusalem. We try to do things on our own strength. We do try to save ourselves. But thanks be to God that he is gracious and loving and kind. He is there to extend grace to those who come to him in faith and repentance. He is there to restore us. We simply must not be like others of God's people who allow themselves to decline. But we must ever rely upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that he purchased for his people and applied to us by his Holy Spirit. We must be ever diligent and vigilant, watchful, alert to how easy and how susceptible we are to a rapid decline. Oh, it would be so nice when Christ returns and the remnants of sin are just completely removed. But until then, Isaiah's prophecy stands for us as a stark warning to God's people not to trust in men, but rather to flee to God himself, to flee to his servant that he sets forth, the child born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us, the one by whom his stripes we are healed. We flee to Christ, the only hope of our salvation. He's not just merely a hope. He's the hope. And remember what I've said many times before about biblical hope. It's not a wishful thinking. It's not, I hope so. Well, I hope Jesus will do something. I hope he can do it. No, rather it's that confident expectation that that which is promised will most certainly come to pass. Jesus Christ is our hope. 
He is the one who restores us, who preserves us, who keeps us from any kind of a rapid decline in such a fashion. Look to him, flee to him, rely upon him, and live and walk in obedience to his commands. He will sustain you, he will hold you, and he will never, ever let you go. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God in heaven, how we rejoice at what your word teaches us, even these portions of your word that make us uncomfortable. Father, we confess that it is very easy to look at these Old Testament passages and think that was then. Isaiah was talking about Israel of old. That has nothing to do with us. But Father, we know your word is eternal. But the things and the concepts that are found in your word are things that we see happen over and over and over again throughout church history. Father, we do pray in earnest that you would keep us by your word and spirit from having the same kind of decline that your people of old did, the same kind of decline that we have seen throughout much of church history. Father, we pray that none of us would be naive to the fact that this could happen to us, save for your grace in our lives. And so, Lord, we implore you, sustain us by your grace. Strengthen us that we would be a people that is committed to King Jesus, relying solely upon him to avoid such sinful decline. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.